Okay, we're doing our normal thing. We're going to read scripture to make the people who come late feel really, really bad. Uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Proverbs 4, 1 through 7, and a small section of Job chapter 28. So here we go, Proverbs 4, verse 1. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or swear from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Job chapter 28 verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not correspond, comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. Verse 20, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. In the deservedly obscure movie, Atlantic City, there is one scene where Burt Lancaster is sitting in the restaurant with Susan Sarandon, and the younger woman says to the older man, teach me things. And he replies, what do you want, information or wisdom? It's the one moment of insight in an hour and a half of misery. There is, of course, a huge difference between information and wisdom. It's a distinction well known to ancient cultures as well as our own, although ancient cultures tended to value the wisdom of the past more than mere information, and our culture tends to do the opposite, of course. And it seems to me that this reality of our connectedness to the ancient past and the weirdness of our cultural moment creates very interesting and constructive space for the preaching of biblical wisdom literature in contemporary culture. Um, I mean by wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. All of these biblical books teach us practical wisdom in the context of ordinary life. That's what they set out to do. Wisdom about how to live, how to respond to certain realities, huge ones like suffering, wisdom about our intellectual capacities and their limits, hugely important human 
themes, and they're also biblical themes. Information about these matters we may well possess in abundance. We may well be overwhelmed by data deemed relevant to our reflections on all of these matters. Information we possess, well-meaning modern advice, but what about wisdom? That's the question. That's the explicit interest of these books. And the wisdom that all these books offer us uh, is ordinary, in a sense. What I mean by that is, it's not wisdom that's unique to Israel, and it's not wisdom that was pronounced by Moses on Mount Sinai. So we're not in the arena of God's special revelation to Israel, that kind of zone. Uh, you can read the biblical wisdom literature and I don't believe you'll find any reference to the patriarchal history or the Mosaic law as such, or the exodus, or the election of Israel, or the covenant with David, or, or whatever. That's just not the zone of these books. Um, these are not books about the mighty acts of God in Israel's history. Right? The knowledge of God and of ourselves that these books offer us derive more from the ordinary things of life, the experience of those who are older and wiser, from our elders, uh, from observing creation. These are the sources of knowledge. And this knowledge in Scripture stands alongside the special revelation given to Moses and to others. It does not arise directly out of it. It's another source of wisdom. It's part of a much broader wisdom tradition, actually, in the ancient Near East. And this is not very surprising. All human beings need wisdom. They always have. All human beings need wisdom about how to handle suffering, for example, because suffering is a universal phenomenon. It's not surprising, then, that we find wisdom literature not just in ancient Israel, but in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. It's not surprising that a lot of the subject matter would be similar or the same, because these are human issues, right? So it's not very surprising. What marks out biblical wisdom literature is not that it deals with utterly different subject matter. What marks out biblical wisdom literature is the context into which wisdom is drawn. So we're back to the context thing. It's one of my big things, as you can see. Wisdom in the Old Testament functions always in the context of a right relationship with God, with Yahweh. That's the context into which it's drawn. Now, that's the same Yahweh who creates the world and the same Yahweh who rescues Israel from Egypt, and that's the context into which wisdom is drawn. This is very well summed up in a number of the Proverbs, but here's one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Right? doesn't mean that uh, they don't discuss other things from other religious environments. It doesn't even mean that they don't from time to time borrow stuff from other cultures, because they do, actually. Because if something's true, it's true. Right? So you, it, the question is not, is it true? The question is, how are we to understand it within this great big story that we've been, we've been speaking about? How are we to locate it there? So, for example, um, Proverbs 25 uh, certainly has parallels elsewhere in the ancient Near East. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. 
If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In other words, love your enemy. Gospel theme, I just want to note. It's already in Proverbs 25, right? So if your enemy is hungry, well, that's about hospitality, right? And hospitality, even toward enemies, was a duty accepted by other cultures as well, right? It doesn't mean it wasn't your enemy, but under certain circumstances, it would be wrong not to offer hospitality to your enemy. So what's unique about this proverb is not that it's only found in Israel. What's unique about it is what follows. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In other words, it's not that issues of justice aren't important, but you're not the person supposed to be dealing with that. Leave that to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It comes up in the New Testament as well, right? So don't get into the vengeance thing. David is commended for not doing that with Saul, you may remember. That's what virtue looks like. You don't take advantage of your enemy in the, in the David uh, case. Another example from Proverbs. Um, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Well, that's good advice for an Egyptian, right? It's not just good advice for an ancient Israelite. That arises from the experience of other people who have made friends with hot-tempered men, and then they come and say, don't do that. It's not smart. Uh, the advice is not specifically Israelite, but the whole context in which the advice is offered is. Uh, final example on this point. Go to the ant, you lazy bones. Consider its ways and be wise. I do not believe you need to find a specifically Israelite ant. <laughs> An Egyptian or a Babylonian ant will do just as well. You see that? Can you see that? The anthills are pyramid-shaped. That's the point. I, I couldn't make that bigger. It came from somewhere else. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So you see the specific advice is, is not specific to ancient Israel. That's the point I'm making. But the biblical way of thinking about God and the world is, is utterly different. We, we've covered that, right? So you're drawing all of this wisdom in general into the larger truth that's all about God's ways with the world, and you are inviting Israelites also, and Bible readers like us, to read this, this wisdom in that canonical context. So that's the, that's the big picture. Um, let's look at the individual books, because uh, each of them present uh, different kinds of challenges. Uh, for reading and, and for preaching. As I'm sure you know, uh, the book of Proverbs is made up of a prologue, chapters 1 through 9, and then six collections of Proverbs, each with their own heading, and to some extent their own distinctive vocabulary, suggesting they come from different places originally and have been collected together. The two main sections are chapters 1 to 9 and chapters 10 through 31, and they're rather different in character. Chapters 1 through 9 is really an extended wisdom discourse about the nature of wisdom, setting up the generalities of, of the thing. And then in chapters uh, 10 to 31, we have these shorter 
Proverbs. So the beginning sets the scene for what follows in chapter 10 and provides you with the context, the bigger picture, the fear of the Lord and all of that language that gives you the context for reading the individual Proverbs. The second part of the book in in particular is not only a bit challenging to read, it's very challenging to preach on. Because these are mainly one-liners. There are occasional signs of grouping according to theme, but for the most part, these proverbs appear not to be ordered very consciously. So earlier I was arguing the prophets are, um, but the proverbs do not appear to be so much. You move pretty swiftly, don't you, from one topic to another very often, uh, and we'll come back to that, because that does create some challenges. In terms of the relationship between the two sections of the book, uh, chapters 1 to 9 set the scene, as I say. They introduce you to the big ideas of wisdom and folly. And the dominant theme of these early chapters is the value of wisdom and the danger of folly, both of whom are characterized as attractive women appealing for lovers. Um, Both of these women are presented, actually, as divine figures. Their houses are located on the highest point of the city. That's where the gods, the high places, right? So these are divine figures. They're they're really symbolic of different religious ways, right? The way of Yahweh and the other ways. So in the background here is the ongoing biblical battle, really, between the true God and the false gods represented now by, by wisdom and by uh, folly. The reader is urged to seek wisdom, personified in this way as, uh, as this uh, lady wisdom. Uh, throughout the early chapters, the young man who's being addressed in these chapters is encouraged to embrace this lady wisdom. Her embrace brings life and to avoid the other women along the way who are characterized as seducers, adulteresses, developing a pretty well-known biblical metaphor of marriage and sexuality as a metaphor for religious faithfulness or not. So there are two ways in Proverbs, very much like the two ways in the book of Psalms that we'll look at tomorrow morning. And the person who follows the right path is wise, and the one who does not is a fool which doesn't mean they're not intellectually competent, you understand. It's a moral category. It's foolishness. Smart people can be foolish. I'm sure you've discovered this to be the case, right? Um, So the two things are not the same, right? Uh, So wisdom on the one hand and the fool on the other. So Proverbs 10 through 31 then, the one-liners, have to be read in the light of this big picture. So there's a big, big picture, and now there's the big picture. Two ways, and that's really what the Proverbs are about. So Proverbs chapter 1, 2 through 6 gives you the purpose of the book for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and a prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. 
Uh, just hold on to those words, parable and riddle, by the way, because it relates to what I'm going to say about the Proverbs later. You're getting the impression here that this is going to require some work. Yes, riddles and parables, I mean, typically they require some work, right? So, the overall purpose of the book, and then the context uh, in Proverbs 1-7, one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Okay? So, all of the material in the first nine chapters, I don't think is very difficult to communicate. It immediately evokes in the mind many New Testament passages that express similar ideas. Uh, Jesus in the Gospels is often presented as a wise teacher who uh, tells parables, for example. That's a wisdom kind of thing to do. His parables are stacked full of creation imagery, right? You learn by observing creation or by imagining ordinary human things like people dropping coins or seeking sheep or whatever, right? The wisdom is, is drawn from the ordinary human uh, stuff. Um, when it's not parables, it's sayings like, consider the birds of the air. What can you learn, right, from observing how creation works? So Jesus is presented as a wise teacher. Sometimes Jesus is, is himself apparently uh, presented as personified wisdom. So he, he picks up that wisdom theme. And there are a number of texts where arguably that's uh, what's going on. So he is laying out two ways, as it were, and inviting people to follow himself as, as the wisdom, the same character, as it were, uh, uh, as there was in the book of Proverbs. So that's picked up in a, a whole uh, bunch of ways. And uh, more broadly, Jesus, of course, uh, presents himself as the way. The way, the truth, and the life. And the early Christians, of course, are known as people of the way, um, which often strikes me nowadays as, as a self-description which we should recover and give the word Christian a rest for a while, given that it's so widely misunderstood, uh, even by Christians. Um, the, thing about, the thing I like about people of the way is that it's a description that involves movement. It's not a static thing. It's not, I am something. Well, good for you in a way, who cares? I want to know who you're following and where you're walking, really. Uh, it has that advantage, you see, the second thing. Uh, and, and, and don't tweet that, right? This is, we had this guy, Proven, you know, from Canada, and he said we shouldn't call ourselves Christians anymore. Well, okay, that's the end of me. Uh, <laughs> but just between you and me, just between you and me, I think that's worth thinking about. Okay? So, the whole bit in chapters 1 to 9, I think that's, that's pretty straightforward. Proverbs 10 through 31, a, a rather different uh, matter. It takes a very bold preacher and perhaps even an overconfident one to preach a whole sermon on one proverb. And indeed, it's a rather dangerous thing to do. Uh, my favorite illustration of the danger comes from this verse in the first instance. Proverbs 26, verse 4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. This seems very straightforward. Uh, you take this as your text. 
You choose other passages in Scripture to bring into conversation. You add them all together, and uh, you exhort your congregation to embrace this wisdom. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. And to do this, you invent a friend whose name is Angus, because you are still nurturing your Scottish Presbyterian roots, and the older people in your congregation think this is really cool, and you present this scenario to them, because people like it simple. Is Angus a fool? Yes, he is. He's a fool. Is Angus speaking folly to me? Absolutely. Let's do the math. What should I do? X plus Y equals Z. Okay, I should not answer Angus according to his folly. That's nice and easy. Proverbs 26, verse 4, done and dusted. And heartened by the enthusiasm you see in the faces before you on this particular Sunday morning, you announce to your congregation that next week, you'll be moving on to preach on the next verse, Proverbs 26, verse 5, which you inform them, says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. And this is the moment when you and your congregation realize there's a problem. The problem of preaching Proverbs on a line-by-line basis. In this particular instance, the book of Proverbs absolutely demands not to be read line-by-line, actually. In this case, it requires us to read both these lines together, and both together to receive the wisdom that they offer, which I take to be the following. There are two possible ways of dealing with Angus the fool. Each of these ways has a downside. Now, think about it. (laughs) That is what I take the wisdom to be. And we're not going to get that by reading one of these verses or the other one, right? We're only going to get it by reading them together. And of course, that immediately raises a question. On how many other occasions might it be unwise then to simply read the one-liners by themselves? This is a pretty obvious example, but doesn't that imply that there might be something a bit off with our assumptions now about the one-liners? Are they absolute truths to be put into practice immediately by faithful people? Is that what we're being offered here? Is that really what they're for? Uh, In a church culture that has fallen in love with how-to books, and which thinks that there are five keys or seven steps to just about everything, it's perhaps natural to be looking to the book of Proverbs for a success manual. Perhaps it's even natural in this culture to preach the book in that same way. Into the great Coke machine that is Scripture goes my dollar of brief perusal, And out of it comes, remarkably, with no further effort on my part, the refreshing Coke can that is the biblical view of X, Y, or Z. Well, maybe, uh, but maybe not. Maybe Scripture is not actually like that. Maybe Scripture 
demands a lot more of us than that. Maybe the book of Proverbs resists this atomistic, easygoing kind of treatment. That's certainly the implication of Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Maybe the various one-liners are not intended to give busy people quick answers to complicated moral problems. Maybe they're intended to force naturally impatient people into patient reflection on what they're supposed to do. Maybe that's the point of wisdom. So at the very least, we have to make sure that we are reading Scripture really well. Not just look at the immediate proverb, but look at the context, and then look at the wider context. Because the fact of the matter is that the book of Proverbs returns to many of the same themes again and again and in different ways. So one of the ways that we can avoid this immediate problem is actually by gathering under thematic headings, for example. A whole bunch of Proverbs that seem to touch on the same topic. That would be one way of avoiding the worst excesses of the difficulty. Um, it, it was, it's not difficult to list these, and I'm not going to leave this on the screen long enough for you to really write it down, I'm afraid, but there are some very obvious um, themes that are of repeated interest in the Proverbs. Um, obedience to parents, self-control in speech, in subordinating passions like anger, marrying the right person, generosity. Notice that big theme. We talked about the lack of that theme in the Ten Commandments and the importance of it elsewhere. And interestingly, the absence of excessive wealth is a, is a, is a theme that it comes up more than once. That's, a, that's the way to an unhappy life, excessive wealth. It's an unwise choice. Uh, the proverbial ideal is enough, actually. That's, that's really what's going on. And then on the other side, uh, big themes on the negative side of the path of folly, sexual misconduct, drunkenness, laziness, misuse of the tongue, and other sins like pride and greed. That's, these are not exhaustive lists, right? But you can begin to get a bigger sense of what's going on. And we can begin then to think about these various proverbs uh, together so that we don't misunderstand the single line. But that then leads us on to another contextual reality that I think we need to ponder. The book of Proverbs is addressed mainly to man. You ever thought about that? It's the young man who is urged to embrace lady wisdom and resist lady folly, and all those who represent their various interests. And women appear in many of the individual Proverbs really only in respect of what the good life for man looks like. That's where they show up. Examples uh, here. Wisdom, we're told, will save the young man from the wayward wife with her seductive words or from the immoral woman from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. It is better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with one of these and even or even to live in a desert. <laughs> well, that's all well and good. 
I, 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 can, I can see that. Okay, I, I, I get that. But the image of God in Genesis 1 is both male and female. That's the big, the big frame, right? So how does Scripture in the book of Proverbs address women? What are they to do when tempted by the immoral man? What are they to do when annoyed to death and beyond by a husband who is a drip? <laughs> All of that requires careful thought. What does life informed by wisdom look, look like for women? Does the book of Proverbs explore every aspect of that reality or only some of it? Just pursuing the theme of woman in the book of Proverbs will not necessarily get us to that level of reflection. I mean, you can gather all the Proverbs under the heading of what does the Bible say about woman, and you still won't have addressed this problem I'm talking about. And if you're not really, really careful, you're going to find yourself preaching to less than half of your congregation about less than half of what is important wisdom for their lives while giving the impression that the majority of people in your congregation probably uh, don't matter very much, right? Given the usual demographics of church life anyway these days. In fact, what you'll communicate is that what's mainly true about women in the book of Proverbs is that they're a problem in one way or another for men. And I hope we can all agree that throughout church history, there's been way too much of that kind of preaching already. So how do we make the translation? How do we handle it? That's an important question. And even being careful with your gathering of Proverbs together is not going to get you to that level of reflection. That requires thinking bigger again and being careful and, uh, and even doing some translation, actually making sure you're addressing the whole people of God and not just some of them. So, um, what is the book of Proverbs trying to do? What is it not trying to do? That's the real question. And beyond even the issues I've raised already, uh, when you get down to these one-liners and you ask, well, are they, are they really even... What kind of truth are they trying to communicate? So, another different kind of example... Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Is that actually always true? No. I mean, try, try this on in some non-developed part of the world and see what reaction you get. Right? Doesn't this idea, if that's what it was about, actually contradict other parts of the Bible? where there's a number of different reasons given for poverty. This is only one of them, you see. Big picture. I, I don't think this is given to us as a little kind of thing to, a thing, an absolute thing to believe. I think it's given to us to provoke our thinking about wisdom and folly in the context of the rest of Scripture. So I don't really believe that the book of Proverbs is as it may first appear to be. I don't think it's at all designed as a kind of manual for successful living whose rules, if followed, will invariably bring health, wealth, and happiness. In fact, uh, that rather tragic story that Laura told last evening about the mom, you know, who said, I've done everything right. Why has it gone wrong? Well, it may well be that because she, she thinks that because somewhere along the line she was taught a version of this kind of theology 
that gave the impression if you put your dollar in the Coke machine, you'll get the Coke can. Well, not always you won't. Life's way more complicated than that. If it were that easy, Proverbs 20 verse 24 would not say this. A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? <laughs> so if the other Proverbs are designed to do what people think they're to do, why is that one in there? It's my, that's my question, right? So uh, we have an issue here. We have an issue with our culture. We have an issue with a church culture. We have a whole kind of health, wealth, theology thing going on that's pretty heretical and apostate, but pretty much widely believed, it seems, by many people. And Proverbs can play into that. And I, I suggest it should not be allowed to do so. If we are tempted to do it, we don't have to read too far into the biblical wisdom literature before we are in any case stopped dead in our tracks by the book of Job. For when we arrive at the book of Job, we encounter a man who, even though he was renowned for fearing the Lord, fell headlong into disaster. The righteous man in Job suffers. Actually, that's a pretty blatantly obvious biblical theme. And you might have noticed people, you know, people might have noticed it, but it's really, really obvious here. So here is Job, the man who faithfully is the object of satanic cynicism. Job's righteousness, suggests Satan, will not survive hardship. That's what he proposes to God. Job's only in this whole religion thing for what he can get out of it. In quick succession, Job loses flocks, servants, and children. He does not respond as Satan expects. But Satan is nothing if not a resourceful cynic. Second line of argument, each of us only cares about ourselves. What does it matter then that other creatures have suffered and died? Job hasn't been really touched yet. And so Job develops a hideous disease, you remember. The scene is set for the remainder of the book. First of all, his wife arrives with her astonishingly helpful advice. Curse God and die. After the wife come the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the comforters of Job, as they have often been called by somebody who is making a joke, I think. Uh, they do not bring comfort. William Blake, I think, captures the actual scenario really much better with this painting of the so-called comforters of Job. Most of the remainder of the book, as you know, comprises dialogue between Job and one or other of these friends. And the major theme of the whole book is how far can you explain life in terms of input-output equations? Really? Is it really true that living in the right way before God inevitably leads to blessing? Is that really true? Is it really true that only those who fail to live in the right way suffer negative consequences? The dialogue between Job and his friends about all of that goes on for some time. And we don't have time to rehearse it uh, this morning. Eventually, it grinds to a halt with Job's repeated assertion in chapter 31 of his innocence before God and man. 
often referred to as the Old Testament Sermon on the Mount because it goes to the, the heart of the issue, as it were, with regard to Job's innocence. It's not just, I haven't committed adultery, I have not lusted. You remember we talked about that verse the other day. Uh, so Job is, 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 uh, is, is convinced that in spite of everything, in fact, he is innocent and God has described him as blameless and as righteous. So there's not much question about it. Uh, Job's uh, protestation in, in chapter 31 reduces his friends at last to silence. And now we await the voice of God. Unfortunately, what we get instead is the voice of Elihu, an opinionated young man who launches one last attack on Job to try to get him to change his story. He fails, and he suffers the ultimate indignity of being ignored by God in the final chapters as an irrelevance. God then does speak. It's a very interesting summing up. The ways of God in the world, he reminds everyone, are far beyond mortal comprehension. Job, as well as his friends' comprehension, God is beyond them all. Job is in no position to argue with God, which Job acknowledges is certainly true. Some translations have him repenting of sin at this point. I doubt that myself. I don't think that's actually what's going on, because God then says of Job in chapter 42 that he basically said what was right all the way through. The three friends, God confirms, are all wrong all the way through, even though they're pretty orthodox in a way, if you're sticking to a certain way of theology anyway. But the story has a happy ending. The friends are not dealt with according to their folly, disguised as wisdom. The righteous Job is blessed once again, and so things end well. In the end, they, they turn out well. And so this is a rather uh, complicated book. It's a very interesting book. In the end, as in the beginning, Job is indeed righteous, wise, and blessed. The righteous do prosper in the end. But what the book of Job is keen to impress on us is that we cannot apply this as a kind of rule that explains actual human experience in some kind of rigid and dogmatic way. Truth, in the end, is ultimately personal and relational, and it cannot be entirely accounted for with a kind of blessing, virtue blessing, you know, sin kind of judgment kind of thing. Not in the meantime, anyway. Not in the here and now. There are things that happen in the here and now, says the book of Job, that simply cannot be explained along these lines. The righteous will ultimately be blessed, but not necessarily and obviously right now. That's what I take the book of Job to be about. That's why the friends are wrong. They're not wrong in many generalized ways about the nature of reality, but they're very wrong with regard to Job. Job may be a little bit wrong sometimes. He certainly pushes the edges you in some of what he says, maybe he's slightly wrong, but actually he's really not criticized for what he's believed and what he's said. Generally, he has been wise, even while suffering terribly. 
all the time. So folly is bad, wisdom is good, but nobody has so much wisdom that he can read God's mind as God works in this world in salvation and in judgment. Wisdom has very real limitations and only in the vision of God are the paradoxes of human existence ultimately swept away. Now we see in the glass darkly, as somebody famous later will say. Now we know for sure, I think, that the book of Proverbs is not to be read as a kind of easy fix-it set of rules of life with inevitable consequences. This is just impossible to read Proverbs in, in that way if we have read the book of Job. And this becomes still clearer when we move on to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is all about the limitations of wisdom. It's the entire theme of the book. It's about the question of what is the wise way of handling the limitations of wisdom, interestingly. The author of this book is often assumed to be King Solomon, uh, maybe operating under the pseudonym of Kohelet, from which we get the word Ecclesiastes, uh, for all sorts of reasons. I don't think Solomon is Kohelet. I also don't think Kohelet is the author of the book. I think the author of the book is the anonymous writer in chapter 12, actually, right at the end. But in a way, that's not very important for our purposes just at the present time. Whoever wrote Ecclesiastes, it's certainly a pretty challenging read. Um, the argument of uh, most of it rambles around a bit, repeats itself, and occasionally seems to contradict itself, actually, as you read it. Uh, this has contributed to great confusion about how to read it. What's it really saying? Uh, some of the confusion disappears, I think, when we realize that one of Kohelet's strategies in probing the limits of wisdom is to quote a proverb and then to explore it and or disagree with it. That's where some of the sense of contradiction comes from. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Um, Ecclesiastes 2.14 The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. Now you could cut that out, paste it into Proverbs, and it would not look out of place. Right? It's a proverb all by itself. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. But, this is his favorite thing, I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So there you have a one-liner, as in Proverbs, but now you have a whole series of reflections. Is this true? How far is it true? What are the problems with believing it to be true? Death seems to abolish the wisdom of that wisdom. That's basically what he's saying. The reality of death just makes a nonsense of this distinction. A similar idea in uh, chapter 3, uh, 16 through 22. 
slightly smaller font to get more on there. I apologize for that. But look at the, uh, the line I've highlighted. God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and a time for every deed. But I also thought this other thought, he says. You see what he's doing? God, as for men, God tests them so they may see they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. They both die. You see the problem again. Here's, here's a statement. Looks pretty orthodox, but I'm thinking there's something that needs to be explored here. There's a problem uh, here. So some of the challenges with the book of Ecclesiastes are lessened when we realize that this quite often is happening. Something is said so that the author can then discuss it and not necessarily agree with it, qualify it, dismiss it, uh, or whatever. That's one challenge. Another challenge, a major challenge, uh, is some of the translation work that has been done on the book of Ecclesiastes, which is unfortunately unhelpful. And this is where I make my standard once-a-week exhortation to you all to learn some Hebrew if you haven't already. It's not too late, folks. You can do it. Okay. Let me tell you why this is important. The NIV, uh, in all sorts of places, and it's not alone in this, translates uh, a particular word that I want to discuss by the English word meaningless. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Can you see that? It's a bit small about two-thirds of the way down, in this passage in Ecclesiastes 3, everything is meaningless, says the NIV. As if Kohelet were a 20th century French existentialist philosopher born well before his time. The Hebrew word is Hevel, which is also the name of Cain's brother, by the way. We call him Abel. It's Hevel. It pops up in the NIV translation right at the beginning of the book. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And we simply want to go back to bed and give up. <laughs> but this is really not correct, I'm afraid. And you can see how doubtful Jean-Paul Sartre is about it himself. Uh, Kohelet clearly does not believe that everything in the world is meaningless. Even a cursory reading of the book will show you that he constantly recommends certain ways of being to his readers because they will enable them to know goodness and joy. Right? Constantly doing that. Hevel does not mean meaningless. What it actually means is a breath or a breeze, and therefore something insubstantial or fleeting, something that's moving quickly away, something we can't grasp a hold of, things that make no permanent impression. That's what he's really on about. That's what he wants to say about our created reality, that everything is fleeting. That's the right translation. Everything is ephemeral. And this makes much better sense of certain passages in Ecclesiastes that if you read them in the NIV are incomprehensible. 
frankly. Uh, let me give you an example here. Uh, be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart, and cast off the troubles of your body. In other words, enjoy your youth, mindful that you're accountable to God, for sure, but enjoy your youth. The NIV then concludes this advice with the following, for youth and vigor are meaningless. <laughs> Be happy while living reverently before God because youth and vigor are meaningless. Well, good luck with that. I have a feeling you're going to need your happy pills to make that work. <laughs> of course he doesn't mean that youth and vigor are meaningless. What he means to say is that youth and vigor are fleeting. They're brief. They, they pass away very quickly. You can't hold on to them. You'd like to, maybe, but it's not open to you. They slip by. Enjoy them while you have them, he's saying, in, in a righteous way, but enjoy them. They're gifts of God to you. The merest of breaths. This takes us back to the beginning. This is the better translation of the beginning. The merest of breaths, says Kohelet. The merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. That's how the book really begins. And now we're close to the heart of the book. Reality is elusive, he says. It resists our attempts to capture it, contain it, grasp hold of it, control it. If that's what we're going to try and do, we're going to be miserable. Because the world will resist us. It won't allow us to do it. And he says, this is true at the level of understanding. It's true at the level of action. The ways in which the world works in some measure are comprehensible to us, but in significant measure they are not. They're beyond our grasp. It resists our ability to sum it up. It resists our ability to manipulate it and control it and lead it to predictable outcomes. And now you begin to see why this book is so important for the 21st century, by the way. Right? Because we live in a world which is marked by this chasing after the wind, as he puts it sometimes. That's another way that he expresses the same idea. Chasing after the wind. The point is not that human activity is intrinsically meaningless. Wisdom is still a lot better than folly uh, in this book. All sorts of things are good in themselves. Uh, there's some very obvious passages of this sort. Uh, chapter 9, go eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white, always anoint your head with oil, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this brief life that God has given you under the sun, all of your passing days. Life can be good if you're willing to live it within the constraints that the Lord God, your Creator, has set. Right? Life can be good. But the nature of our sinful reality is that we won't accept that. We want to shape it and mold it. We want to make it do our bidding. We want to improve upon it. This goes all the way back to Francis Bacon, 
just after the Reformation and his deliberate program to use emerging science to control reality. This is where our modern obsession with doing the same ultimately comes from. Uh, politicians promise it, advertisers sell it, popular writers endorse it in all sorts of ways. It's the curse of our time. You can be what you like, do what you like, you can manipulate reality in any old way you like, and you'll find happiness and fulfillment and authenticity. And the book of Ecclesiastes says, not in the slightest degree is that true. It is actually by accepting your mortality and your limitations as part of what wisdom is actually, that you will get to the place that you have to go. And this is where the book eventually ends up. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So you see, we, we, we return in the end to the idea, yes, it does matter whether it's wisdom or folly. The paths both lead somewhere. Enjoy it all as from God and live in, in conformity with the truth of that. And you'll find plenty of reasons for joy and fulfillment and, and so on and so forth. But, but if, you, if you depart from that true story and you start doing other stuff, well, look out. Because at the end of the day, the Creator God will indeed hold us to account for how we have lived and what we have done. Uh, you see again how easy it is, I think, to uh, be biblical and wrong. You take a bit out of Ecclesiastes, and that's what you go with. But maybe it's the wrong bit. <laughs> so, so you have to read the whole thing and you have to be astute about what the words mean and how it all hangs together. This is an absolutely wonderful book, very much addressed to our time if we really get uh, a hold uh, of it. Um, so um, one of our tasks, I think, here is just that we have to reframe people's expectations about what Scripture is doing and what the wisdom literature is doing. Here's my favorite illustration of, of the problem, I think, that uh, Kohelet is identifying and our contemporary problem with believing it. Um, this goes back to it's a radio communique I came across a number of years ago. It's a U.S. Navy communique. It's a verbal exchange between a, a ship uh, and another party on the radio. It went something like this. Voice one, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Voice two, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. No, I say again, divert your course. This is the aircraft carrier Enterprise. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> your call. <laughs> it, 
It's one of the great delusions of our time that the exertion of human power can change the shape of reality and make everything better. And in a world gone mad in this way, it is inevitable that many people in our churches will also be found to be completely mad. One of our tasks as preachers is to bring them to their senses by telling them the truth. The wisdom literature provides fantastic tools for the task if we are prepared to resist the expectations of the people in the asylum. <laughs> what they want all too often is seven steps to the happy life, five keys to the successful marriage, and ideally one five-minute exercise to bring them to the heart of the spiritual life lived out before God. And I think we have to choose not to do that. I think we have to choose biblical wisdom which subverts that wisdom. And the fact of the matter is, as, as, as Kohelet says, if we won't change our course, we won't be able to complete the journey. What we'll do is simply basically shipwreck ourselves on the rocks. That's it. That's the end. LAUGHTER